0: Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains podcast with me, Chris, and today we welcome back John, who has come on twice before, back in May, and he did a full interview with me and we spoke about climbing Denali, the tallest mountain in North America. If you haven't listened to those podcasts, I really recommend you go back and give them give him a go. But today we are talking about the Seven Summits World Record, which he helped mastermind and facilitate and did six of the Seven Summits. So, really interesting insight to how you go about doing this, some unknown stories that happened on the days, and otherwise, just a really great podcast, listen to John tell his stories. Any questions, let me know, btmtravelpod at gmail.com, but otherwise, let's get into it. Hello John, welcome to the Between the Mountains podcast, back again for, for a trilogy for a Thor for Hattrick. How are you Thanks doing? for
1: having me back yeah i'm really good today uh the sun is shining again in north wales um and it's a pleasure to be back
0: yeah absolutely it's uh i wish i had north wales not only i'm lucky to live where i do but if i had the north wales weather and views i think i'd uh, (laughs) that's the only way the weather could be better today but but (laughs) oh don't get me
1: wrong it it rains a lot here oh yeah of course uh, well at the moment it seems to be nice and sunny it's very beautiful
0: Lovely, wonderful. So today we're going to be talking about uh, the Seven Summits, essentially the world record held by Steve Plain because you had quite a severely large handling in the whole thing. You were masterminded and facilitated the the movement of it all. Um, How was the whole experience for you? Um,
1: The experience as a whole was... Uh, it was huge. I mean, Steve and I traveled together for just over four months, uh, just the two of us, you know, really small, tight unit going about our thing. Um, and and yeah, overall, it was incredibly successful. Um, we just took one mountain at a time. Uh, you know, and as you said, I, I sort of organised it all and orchestrated the trip, but we only needed to concentrate on sort of one at a time because there's no point in moving on if, you know, until one is complete. But as a whole, I, I think now, like looking back on it and reflecting on it, I probably underestimated just how big this trip was, um, not only in practical senses, but just how big a sort of accomplishment it was for him given his um, history and, and for myself and, and how far I'd come as a, as a guide and in, as an instructor at high altitude to be able to facilitate an expedition like this. But yeah, it took me a while to fill the void after we got home from something that had been entirely all-encompassing for every minute of four and a half months to being home with nothing to do. It was really weird. But yeah, a a, a incredible,
0: incredible trip. Let's talk a bit about that, because you mentioned on another podcast, I recommend if you haven't haven't listened to it already called Further Faster Podcast. You actually talk about what I think every serious traveller gets, which is those holiday blues, essentially. Uh, And it's not quite, you know, oh, I wish I was back in my Greek hotel, sun sun tanning by the the swimming pool. These are epic trips that so many of us do. And we get back and it is just... um, I think there's no, there's no way to describe it really, other than kind of, it's just everything comes to a stop, and that momentum like builds at like the front of your face because you can't move anymore, and then you just really want to be back it, on the mountain. How how do you deal with it? Because I actually quite liked what you discussed in that podcast.
1: Post expedition blues, or PEBs as it's been abbreviated to, <laughs>
2: is
1: um has has become sort of part and parcel of what I do um, and my sort of life and at first um, I found them quite hard to deal with you know it's basically a a sort of very melancholy reflective almost slightly depressive state of mind Uh, it's a come it's a come down you know after you've had something that was so rich so powerful or so so enjoyable um, for a period of time in in this particular case you know like a big climbing mountaineering expedition And then you sort of it it all crescendos very quickly, and then before you know it, it, you know you're back home, um, and sort of trying to fit back into normality. But your norm or my or your you're the put like your normality is now is now in the mountains or now within that thing that you've just given so much of your time to, that coming home feels foreign. So. I find that I need some time to get back into what is considered my normal life at home uh, and sort of intricate back into that and the sort of society at home. Uh, And I sort of see it as almost a measure of how good the trip was or how much of an impact that particular trip has had on me by how severe and how long this sort of post-expedition blues last for. Now, just to give you a quick bit of insight, like a really good expedition, like a Himalayan trip, three weeks or so, with a lovely team, like generally successful, but a really, really great team. I might feel a bit like a bit blue and sort of all the rest of it for three or four days or so. And then, you know, but this is still now after doing loads of trips, like a really good trip will still get me. After this trip with Steve, I grossly underestimated just how much of my time and how much of myself I was going to be giving to this project, Um, and the void that I'd left was so enormous that I wasn't really myself for a couple of months, if if not slightly longer. Um, And in the end, I found that writing about it helped. um, And specifically, I wrote an article that went into a beautiful publication called Sidetrack Magazine, um called isolation because uh, that's kind of how you feel because nobody as- understands nobody like
0: how's only... it as well nobody cares maybe maybe with the uh, <laughs> seven summit because I got back from a road trip to Norway. No, it's not climbing the seven summits of the world. But for me that was escapism. It's it was ten days, three thousand miles driving with my friend. We went to this festival uh, we met new people, I saw new landscapes, and I get back, and the office job I had, which I liked, I was just sat there thinking, like, what the hell am I doing? Like, <laughs> like I'm putting so much effort into this, what is a matter? I started questioning everything, yeah, it's, um, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, you're 100% right, and I I don't think it's necessarily that they don't care, because um, I know that, like, my parents, for example, and some of my really good friends, they do care, yeah. you know, about about me and what I'm doing that I come back but understandably they don't really know how to explore a conversation about how I'm feeling or about what it's like now that I'm home because you know they're, they're not in that moment with me. They well, we can't and, relate uh, I guess. Yeah. It, can't go,
0: that must be like when I climb K2 or something they can't do something like that or, or even on a smaller scale part of the reason I love doing this podcast is because you can talk to me about how great it feels to summit Everest, and I don't know what that feels like, but I know how great it is to travel and do these other things that I've done. Yeah. So I'm actually really interested.
1: in in your way, you know, however you apply what you've achieved or what you've done. Yeah, I agree. But yeah. um, I've I've come to appreciate and understand that even like really good friends of mine who do similar things to what I do. Because they're not in that state that minute, they've kind of not forgotten, but temporarily forgotten, maybe, what it feels like to be in a sort of post-exhibition blue state. So, you know, even my friend up the road, I go and have a cup of tea, and I know that she, she felt like this before, but because she's not in it right then, it's difficult for her to really reach into that level of conversation and sort of talk about it. And I've actually learned that I don't mind. And, and it makes it kind of special in a way because it's my experience. Um, and, you know, the, with Steve, yeah. with, we, we, we both fully understood how each other felt, even though we also realized that we felt different. Um, he was about the only person I could just send a message to saying, oh, life's crap, isn't it? <laughs> 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 like, can we, should we go back? Um, but I do also know that you, you come out the other side stronger, and it just take and and there is light at the end of the tunnel, uh, and you 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 come out better and stronger and more driven at the end. It's just that, and I know that because that's what happens every single time.
2: Yeah.
1: But sometimes it just takes longer to get to the end of the tunnel.
0: And that's what I was. That's that is the summary of this little segment is what I wanted to get to, which was the 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 part in that podcast where you said, I actually now look forward to it because I know that the next one, the next thing I do is just going to be as epic.
1: Yeah. 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 And you have to you can't hark back to trying to replicate something because it's they're all unique. Yeah. Uh, You know, sometimes people say, what was the favorite trip you've ever done? And it's kind of like, it's the first time I've ever done anything. But that, that in the, in the sort of main podcast that we did a while ago, um, you touched on very briefly about that Belize trip at the very beginning of all of this. That was Mm. the, the instigator, the the fuel on the fire that started everything. And that I can never replicate how special that trip was because that was the moment that everything came together. And I thought, this is what I'd like to do for the rest of my life. I can't, I don't want to and I can't replicate that and that's great because it means that every trip is its own and it's special
0: yeah perfect perfect so so the seven summits so you essentially facilitated and masterminded the whole thing so let's talk just a bit quickly about the order how did you go about choosing the order of the mountains
1: yeah good question so uh, conventionally, the order would run from uh, Mount Vincent in Antarctica, and then it would finish with Denali in uh, late May, June. And then in between that, you'd have the other five of Kilimanjaro, Denali, Elbrus, Everest and Carson's Pyramid or Kosciuszko, depending on which set of the seven summits you were doing, the Messner version or the Bass version. Um, in this case,
0: we did both.
1: We did both. We wait, wait, were
0: on the journey of the podcast. You did
2: both. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, we, the Steve, Steve and I. Um, so we had the bookends. But um, a few years before, uh, a very, very strong Polish climber uh, decided he would pull Denali inside before Everest and do it sort of late winter. And, by, and he was successful in managing to do that against all the odds, and then went to Everest a bit later and summited towards the end of the season and chopped off a reasonable amount of time. Um, And by doing that, sort of, you know, opened up a new possibility. So so when Steve first approached me about it, I wasn't actually completely aware about how this um, Polish gentleman had achieved sort of beating the record. And then I I started looking into it and Steve said, well, we're going to have to do Denali, you know, before Everest, I was like, "Well, that's out of season. No one does that." And then he said, "Well, we're we're going to do it." I was like,
2: <laughs>
1: "So, yeah." And I started doing lots of research. And yes, of course, it's possible. I knew it was possible, but it's it was going to be really hard and really really cold. Um, so we did. Um, well Steve did, Vincent first without me, and then we met in Mendoza and did Aconcagua, and then across to Uh, Kilimanjaro both of which I've done quite a few times before and then we went to Carson's Pyramid which is an amazing place it's on the uh, Mm. uh, it's not Papua New Guinea West Papua Uh, it's on the southwest coast of West Papua it's amazing absolutely amazing Um, and I'd never been there before so that was a really special trip for me as well to go somewhere new and then we actually had like a two week mini break in the middle where we went to Australia, where Steve's from. And whilst we sort of had a rest and recuperated, we also, uh, Steve and his uh, parents' involvement with the Rotary Club organized a charity climb of Kosciuszko, which is the highest peak in Australia. Um, and then we saddled up again and flew across to Elbrus for a mid-winter ascent of Elbrus, which gets done very rarely as well. That was a February ascent. We were the only people on the mountain, and it was bullet cold. It was freezing, but blue sky. It's amazing. The photos are incredible. uh, Yeah, they're so good. And it was heartbreaking because I love skiing, especially sort of off-piece powder skiing. Uh, And at the bottom of the south side of Elbrus is actually a a ski resort. Uh, It's pretty famous for free ride skiing uh, and ski touring. And we basically were queuing up with all these skiers and uh, free ride skiers and stuff to get on the ski lift, to go up onto the mountain, but without skis. Uh, but with like our big packs, all our mountaineering climbing kit and everything. And I was just like, oh no, this, this is so wrong. Like I need my skis. Where are my skis? <laughs> um, unfortunately Steve doesn't ski. So, you know, if he did, we would have considered taking them. Um, but, no, you know, we didn't want to be distracted. And then uh, six across to Denali, and then as soon as we were finished, we headed to Kathmandu.
0: Perfect, perfect. Yeah. So that was the order then, and um, and and just just to clarify, what were the reasons for putting Denali in the middle? Was that just to get Everest as a last final point, or
1: <clears throat> no? So um, with the bookends um, fixed. And by that, I mean Vincent at the start and then Everest at the end. Yeah. They're sort of fixed entities. And then you can do what you want with the other five. Okay. So okay. we obviously put them in an order that would make them the best possible time to go within that time frame. So Kilimanjaro, you could do any time. Elbrus, I've, I've done 14 or 15 times. And I was quite happy that if we went when it was winter, as long as we had weather that was OK, then we'd be fine. Yeah, uh, Castle's Pyramid you can do whenever the, ever you want but it might be raining but that's okay it's it's rock climbing uh, a grade that would be fine if it was raining um, and then Denali was the one that we needed to have at the best possible time so we weren't going to do it in season but we might. there's no point in making it any harder than it was inevitably going to be so we put it as close to Everest as we could and then, so basically, we had, like, the two bookends with Denali tucked in just before Everest, and then the other four, we actually had ample time to just enjoy those, take our time, and not have to worry. And we squeezed in a two-week rest in Australia halfway through. Nice. <laughs> yeah.
0: Did, uh, yes. did Steve get back out on the surf, did he? Uh,
1: I think he's. has back he... in the sea and back in the surf, yeah. Yeah,
0: because those sort of events either, uh, what, what Steve went through, uh, either say no no more surf <laughs> or or you just go back and understand it as a, as a one-off
1: steve's an incredible guy he's not only the fittest uh physically fittest person i've ever met by miles he's also incredibly determined um uh quite logical uh and sort of and very practical so i'm sure he would have taken that situation and sort of looked at it and just been rational about it and knowing that it was a pretty freak accident and incredibly unfortunate. And he was obviously very fortunate with the result, but I don't think it's prevented him from uh, getting back into the sea and enjoying the ocean. He lives in Perth. so he's, yeah. well,
0: it's, it's almost mandatory yeah. <laughs> as much as churches for Christians, certainly <laughs> <Yeah>. for Australians.
1: <laughs> it seems that way. Yeah.
0: Um. So, I, I don't think we need to go into uh, each mountain camp by camp um, as much as I'm itching to do so. Um, we could save them for other episodes. And if you're listening as well, and if, and if you've done any of these mountains, maybe you too, feel free to email in btmtravelpod at gmail.com if you wanted to come on and chat. But just running mountain by mountain, I suppose we could sort of almost as a check-off, talk about the highlights and, and what happened and how you went about doing it. And certainly if you get to... Kilimanjaro, where you yourself have done, uh, as of today, uh, over thirty climbs. If there's no dramas, we can just move on to the next one. <laughs> but,
1: um, oh, there, but... there's there's good little bits about all the all of the the peaks because we did them all slightly unconventionally because it's Steve, <laughs> and, it, uh, 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 and what the reason this is sort of misunderstood in, in the fact that it's a speed record is that the, we didn't do anything fast. All we did was. Climb. This, I say all. What we managed to achieve was to climb the seven mountains in very normal order, uh, without any additional risks or um, unnecessary sort of time restraints. But just did them sort of back to back. Yeah. I mean, in theory, if there was no restraints on seasons, you could squash them into like a month or, or maybe two months or something. Mm. But we didn't rush any of the individual mountains. It was just that we did them all back to back. Yeah.
0: You sent the kit straight to the next place, essentially.
1: Yeah, we just, you know, so Steve climbed Vincent um, with ALE, who sort of managed all of the logistics and expeditions in Antarctica. And then we met in Mendoza and set off um, on Aconcagua together. And we had a normal itinerary that I would take with uh, my normal client groups. Um, But because it's just the two of us, we could play it totally by ear and be completely flexible. As it was, Steve being super strong and uh, and myself you know reasonably experienced at high altitude, we were able to push through the itinerary incredibly quickly whilst you know listening to our bodies and making sensible decisions and Eight days later we'd been to the summit and we were back in Mendoza <laughs> <laughs> um, Not many people know this, but we actually then had uh almost ten days before our flight to Kilimanjaro. Um, and, and as we still, you know, as there's no rush between any of the mountains in the middle section, Steve wasn't asked me if he thought we need to sort of bring everything forward and rush through to Chile, And I was like, no, not at all. We've got plenty of time. So we, we flew to Chile, hired a four by four, got some supplies and then drove through the Atacama desert for a few days. Um, yeah, it was amazing. And then made an attempt on the second highest mountain in South America called Ojos de Salados. Um But it, it was just so random and so cool. We, <laughs> drove, we drove the 4x4 to 5,200 metres um, and then hiked up to the high hut and then you know, made a, an attempt on the summit. And we didn't actually make the summit because overnight it decided to snow three feet. So, made, yeah totally random. So it, it made going really, really tough. Uh and we had a flight to catch. So we ended up, you know, sucking off the summit, which was totally fine. Um, heading back down, got back down to the heart picked up our stuff down to the four by four. And then I hadn't quite realised that the the very vague four by four trail that we'd followed off the the four by four roads, twenty kilometres away, was now completely covered.
0: Oh, of course.
1: <laughs> and I had no idea how to get back to the main road. So within five minutes, the van was on a very steep 45 degree angle with three of the wheels buried and the bottom had bottomed out. So <laughs> only, only us there. And we were starting to think, oh, my God, have, have, we, <laughs> have we really messed up? But hey, we, um, we got ourselves out of it uh and managed to drive thankfully it was a four by four vehicle um, yeah. <laughs> got back to the track and got back uh, uh and caught off like just <laughs>
0: just Amazing. in time Jeez.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah you could have mucked up big time
1: <laughs>
0: you picked the news yeah. didn't you world record attempt <laughs> ruined
1: because stuck back, in the on was, back on kage was really cool really really cool we were able to pull out some really big days move really efficiently on the mountain um and get our relationship off to a really good start because although I knew Steve a little bit I I didn't know him that well um so yeah it was good to start on a real positive and um get the ball rolling
0: perfect um we've kind of skipped out Vincent um I suppose any highlights to mention about Vincent before moving on to, uh, to Kilimanjaro
1: From what I understand from Steve, he said it was one of the most breathtaking places he's ever been. Um, Even since finishing the project, uh, he said there's nowhere quite like it. And I've heard that before. It seems to hold a really special, almost like magnetic appeal to people. Um, Being who he is, uh, he said he found it pretty steady, pretty straightforward. Um, And the main thing for him was that he wanted to try and summit on the very last day of the season. So there's normally five rotations, I believe, through the season. And he went on rotation five and then um, opted to sort of delay until the very last day possible to to summit. So he was pretty pretty psyched. He said he found it pretty steady. Um, and, yeah, he was very much looking forward to pushing it on to the, to the next mountains.
0: That's a question, actually. So measuring just before we go Kilimanjaro, They measure the seven summits from summit to summit. Yeah. Do they measure from start of base camp on the first mountain to the end of base camp on the last mountain?
1: No, it's done exactly as as what you said at the beginning. So the clock started effectively when Steve stood on the summit. Yeah. And then finished the you know the clock finished when we stood on the summit of Everest. But obviously you have to get yourself to and up the first one and safely down the last one as well. Otherwise it's not a success at all. Um, But by numbers and figures it's summit to summit
0: perfect so Kilimanjaro then that's the next one on the list anything worth mentioning here
1: yeah absolutely um, it's a, I've got a lot of love for Kilimanjaro I've been going there every year for the last 10 years or so and I've got you know I, I use a predominantly the same team for all my trips and I've built a really lovely relationship with a number of the local guides and porters and uh, the local company that I use. As Steve was aware that I'd made a couple of one-day ascents of Kilimanjaro in, in, on different trips, um, once with clients and once with a mate for fun. Um, and he was like, oh, sh- should we do that? And I was kind of like, well, yeah, you, yeah, we could do. Um, and I thought about it for a while. One thing Steve did a lot was he would... Um, I'd sort of suggest what we're doing and then he would try and basically make it twice as hard or half the amount of time (laughs) Um, because he is physically superhuman. Um, So it ended up coming, we had a lot of conversations like that, but the underlying thing was that he would always, he would always trust my judgment. uh, And if I kind of said, no, no, this is not the, and then he he would, he would understand and You know, I'd explain why, but he, he wouldn't push it. Um, he's kind of like oh should we do a one day ascent I was like yeah it's really fun but you're gonna miss out a lot I said all the other people that I've done one day ascent with have the week before the the one day speed ascent have climbed the mountain normally over a seven day period and I said that's what they remember that's the special African spirit from from climbing Kilimanjaro I said I don't want you to miss out on that so we agreed on a sort of um a Steve itinerary of Three and a half days instead of seven. So, and I, we, what we also did was, I stitched together a unique itinerary, which was amazing. And I've subsequently done this with one group, and it was so good. Um, we went up a route called the Umboy, which is a nice, quiet, quite direct route. But we did the first two days in one. Not only did we do it in one, but Steve took just shy of four hours to walk uh, at his very fast walking speed. Um, from the gate to the second camp, which is 2,000 metres of ascent, but up to the thing camp. Bear in mind, we're fully acclimatised. We've just come off Aconcagua, which is just shy of 7,000 metres. So acclimatisation isn't a problem for us. So we can break the rules um, because we are fully acclimatised. So we went up there the first day to my favourite camp, which is called Barranco Camp. It's at 3,800 metres. It's really cool. Really cool camp. And then the next day, we again did what would normally be two days in one, which is up the Branco Wall, right across to Karanga Camp, up to the high camp Barafu, and on a little bit further to a sub-high camp called Kosovo, where we spent the night. And then the next day, conventionally, teams would leave around midnight or 1am to go for the summit. But uh, we'd come up with a slightly wacky alternative, which was to leave around 7 or 8 a.m. So no need for midnight starts. Got up, had breakfast. Steve, being Aussie, likes to try and wear shorts all the time and (laughs) gaiters. which shorts and gaiters combo is a bit of a sort of red card, sort of fashion police. uh, (laughs) But, you know, there's no way he was going to change a habit of a lifetime. So we left around 8 a.m., summited three or four hours later. Um, and then we played Connect Four on the summit for an hour or so. And then we decided um, we'd spoken to uh, the skeleton crew that were, were coming along with us. We, you know, park regulations say that you have to employ some local crew. So we did have a few with us. Yeah. And then we spent, a, we spent a night in the crater. So we just descended halfway, half an hour off the back of the mountain down into the crater where a couple of our crew had come up as well. Um, and, you know, we just had a really basic little camp and some food together. There's like five of us. Um, and Steve and I spent the afternoon wandering around the whole of the crater rim and looking in the ash pit. Super cool. And then to finish the next morning, we got up at five, walked the 45 minutes back to the summit, um, watched the sunrise. And then we ran from the summit all the way to the park gate in just over two and a half hours. And then we were oh. back drinking, Drinking beers and uh, swimming in swimming pool by lunchtime. It was really <laughs> good.
0: <laughs> just, ca- just casually.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that was a really good middle ground for, for, the, for, for Steve and myself. Like He got to experience what Kilimanjaro is all about. You know, the, the singing, the dancing and, and everything. It's really special. The different... Um, montane levels that you go through from rainforest to shrubland to sort of desert to glacial alpine you got to experience all of that without yeah, rushing yeah
0: four climates on the mountain don't you
1: uh jungle honestly
0: four or six from memory but you've done it
1: <laughs> yeah i mean there's five or six yeah that's it's nuts it's always changing
0: that's nuts so Kilimanjaro, yet another memorable, super happy, endorphin-filled <laughs> climb real, real
1: trip. Yeah,
2: uh, it's um, really
1: funny when you when you're running down it. The the porters think you're you're bonkers because ninety nine percent of the time the the clients that that go, you know, they're pretty pretty goosed after the summit and they they walk down feeling very happy, but you know, pretty slowly. And then there's me and Steve, like, flying down as fast as we could with our local – or my local guide, um, Julio, keeping up with us because he's super fast. And the porters are just, like, heckling and shouting and – like, all things, like, good. And then they would try and – you know, they'd join in behind our little running train and run down. It was really good fun.
0: That's actually worth mentioning. uh, Another podcast, uh, I I talk about it only because it's Kilimanjaro. So it's not that I've only ever listened to this one episode. I've listened to hundreds. But the Amateur Traveller podcast – and usually did a uh, Kilimanjaro episode, and she said the same thing because because you're following the rules all the way up. But she said summit push normally on the normal itinerary on the Machambi route. Uh, yeah. if I'm saying it correctly. Um, is is pretty epic. It's a long day, and then when you've got to walk back down again, and uh, and they were saying that you you meet people on the flight afterwards, and they are just shot. Um, so yeah, actually, from what I've heard. I, I, do, I believe they think you're bonkers for running down. Yeah,
1: but I tell you what, doesn't doesn't the half um, give your ego a hell of a massage when you're, uh, you know, you get back to high camp and then you know change out of your sort of high clothes, put your trainers and shorts back on, have a little bit of lunch, and then start jogging off down the hill, and you're just overtaking everybody, obviously, yeah. all the way down, uh, and you just hear comments like, "Oh, those guys are crazy," or you know, whatever. It's yeah, just it really massages your ego. It's yeah really of course good. it does yeah <laughs> yeah it's
0: really good so after kilimanjaro we are off to uh, the uh, car 10 <laughs> yes absolutely sorry i was, I was
1: being mean there Over to no, be west, mean. i need to west, learn Pap- west Pap- <laughs> papua. yeah west papua for uh castle's pyramid so i was super excited about this one because yeah, it was completely was, he... un, unknown to me but you know i'd done all the research and i uh, got the logistics all set up, and I was really pleasantly surprised. Um, you know, it's in Indo- you, you first, firstly, you fly to Indonesia to Bali, that's where the, the three or four main operators all live and operate from. And everything went like clockwork. I was kind of expecting to have to uh, pedal pretty hard to make this one work just because of where it is and all the rest of it, um, but it, it couldn't have been any better um but actually it almost scuppered our whole trip so once you kind of sorted a few things you then take a four-hour flight this is how vast indonesia is a four-hour flight to west papua Um, and from there you take a short very short 10-minute helicopter ride up to the base camp for uh, Castle's Pyramid, you used to be able to walk in through the jungle which sounded amazing but um, you do pass through some tribal territories and sometimes it's not appropriate to go through and at that point it, it wasn't um, so we had to go for the what's now the sort of normal way which is to take the helicopter in. Unfortunately the mountain is absolutely adjacent to the world's largest gold mine called Freeport um, And as I'm sure anyone can guess, they're pretty sensitive about A, any tourists or foreigners being in the area. Yeah. Uh, The sort of unrequired helicopters flying very close to, if not over, like the the gold mine. So um, they have a lot of power and a lot of say, and they regularly close the mountain just because they feel like it or they don't want to uh, allow climbers in. Anyway, so some because the helicopter flight has to be very precise through the mountains, it can only do it on clear visibility. Um, And it's all sort of jungle terrain with these limestone rock spires jutting out. And it's incredible. A little bit sort of uh, Jurassic Park-esque. And there'd been a bad weather for six or seven days. And there were a team, there were a couple of teams in at base camp who were getting to sort of desperately low uh, and sort of semi-dangerous, states of uh, sort of food supplies, and they planned to be there for three or four days, and they were there for like ten days or more. Um, and there is a road about a kilometer away from base camp, obviously, which then runs into the mine. So, it, yes, in the worst worst case scenario, they can they can drive up, and you know they can get you. But if you if you have to ask the mine's permission, they'll almost indefinitely shut the mountain because they don't want to do this. Mm. So we were sat for three or four days we went to the airport sat there nothing happened went back to hotel went to the airport went back to hotel and i could you know start to feel this whole project slipping out of our grasp and we were thinking right okay so if we pull forward you know at elbrus could we then come back here and have another go you know we started considering plan abc and then thankfully like it was getting pretty critical because there were some big teams on the mountain. There were two teams on the mountain with like seven clients or eight clients and they'd just run out of food completely. Thankfully the weather cleared and they could get in with the helicopters and get everybody out without having to cause a fuss to the mine. And then we went in the next day. Perfect. The climb's really steady. It's really cool. Um, You basically just camp at, it's, it's the shortest of all the mountains. It's 4,884 metres, so just a fraction higher than Mont Blanc. Um, it's the shortest of the seven summits, but it's uh, immediately technical from about 10 minutes from base camp. You're straight into technical rock. Uh, it would all be graded sort of rock climbing if it was in the UK, uh, but it's super, super sharp, um, really grippy limestone, um, so we, you know, even though it's quite warm, you know, wore gloves and long trousers because it just really ripped you to pieces. But it was brilliant. It's really cool. And and right towards the top, there's this um, gap which would be really challenging to get across. Um, and somewhere in the past, somebody oh, has obviously gone across, and they've they've put in place a, a metal wire. Uh, and there's actually now two or three metal wires, so you have to walk across this sort of 20 meter gap on sort of a one centimeter metal wire you clip yourself in but it's a really really famous like photograph it's really really cool
2: kind of epic
1: yeah yeah totally epic and then up to the summit uh we had a pretty misty day it was quite atmospheric and quite moody we were the only people there again which was really special quite a current theme through all of these uh mountains um yeah so we were that one was physically not too challenging. Technically, it's really interesting, but it's just sort of three or four hours up uh, and an hour or so back down, and, and that's that done. But the logistics were very close to causing the whole project to crumble, fall Pretty apart.
0: Sure. But we didn't, which is good.
1: No, we didn't. No.
0: And now I'm gonna, I'm gonna go all out, and I'm gonna say, Matt Matt Kosciusko. Perfect.
1: Oh yeah. hey. <laughs>
0: my pronunciation is perfect
1: <laughs> uh there's two different variations of the seven summits one includes all the main peaks plus castle's pyramid which we just discussed and one excludes castle's pyramids but does kosiosko instead so at times when castle's pyramid is closed i guess people would do kosiosko now to be honest Kosyoske is really like a family walk um it's very beautiful it's in the south East of uh, Australia. Um, But the main reason we did it was because uh, for Steve, he was obviously chasing this record and um, he'd registered an interest with the Guinness World Record book. And they said um, that they had to effectively do all eight so that there was no discrepancy in completing the Seven Summits. So even though it's called the Seven Summits, the actual Guinness World Record is all based on having completed the eight of them.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, and it's kind of a given, the Kosciuszko, it must be a real pain for people that wouldn't have otherwise wanted to go to Australia because Australia's miles and miles from anywhere. Um, yeah. And it would have been quite an expensive, and uh, time-consuming additional leg to do if you didn't want to, but we had it all planned in it anyway, so it was, it was really fun.
0: Perfect. Perfect.
1: Um,
0: moving on to Elbrus then.
1: So, Elbrus is a really cool mountain. It's uh, in the southwest of Russia on the border with Georgia in the Caucasus mountain range. And the Caucasus are amazing. Really, there's a lot of history within the Caucasus and sort of British exploratory climbing back in the sort of 70s and 80s. It's, it's really, really cool. Um, it's a bit like the European Alps. But actually, quite a few of their peaks do go over five thousand meters. Um, but Elbrus is a huge double-coned volcano, uh, which is very popular as it's relatively straightforward uh, technically and physically. It's still big, and it's still a big summit day. But relatively speaking, it's um, pretty steady. Yeah. Uh, and I've been there quite a lot. Uh, quite happy with the mountain. So we were still carrying some acclimatization. Um but we went in February, so it's re- like it re- really is in the middle of winter, so you're looking at a pretty cold and uh, potentially quite windy summit. Um, but we, we did one day where we sort of uh, did a bigger acclimatization hike just to sort of get the body going again after a long flight, and then moved up to this little hut at 3,800 meters, these little barrel huts that are actually like old barrels that have been clad out. Uh, and they're pretty basic, but they're really fun. Um, and then from there, so this is another good Steve story for you. Um, <laughs> I used my local agency to just help with sort of transfers from the airport and, you know, the language barriers and accessing the permits and that sort of thing uh, to, just to help us. So, and, and the regulations say that you have to have a guide um, if you're using the services of a local agency. It's really difficult to do everything that you need to do smoothly if you don't speak Russian. So, um, so I, I spoke to my um, agency, and I was like, "Look, I, you know, I know that we've worked together for quite a long time, but I need you to understand that this particular trip is a bit unusual. Steve is exceptionally strong, um, and we're going to be going very fast. Just, just walking, but like Steve walking is very fast." Yeah, she's like, yeah, no, no no problem. I've got just a guide for you. He'll be fresh off Aconcagua because that actually is an overlap of the season of Aconcagua. Um yeah, he's he's done Elbrus like 50 times, you know. I said, yeah, "Okay, great." I said, "Um sounds great." So he turned up at the hut uh, that evening. Um we had a quick chat and he seemed really lovely. Um and I said he said, "Also oh, what time do you want to leave? And I said, oh, we were going to leave around 6am, which is about sunrise. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. We need to, we need to leave at like midnight. And I said, uh, I said, I, I, I know why you're saying that. And I said, you know, just in case Anastasia, the, off, the off, uh, lady in the office, hasn't um, sort of fully briefed you. I said, I, I've been up and down here a few times and I've also worked with Steve uh, quite a while. And we I'm quite happy. of leaving at 6 a.m. And he's like, what time do you envisage being on the summit? I said, uh, oh, I don't know, about 10.30, 10. 30, and he just laughed and was like, no, it's not possible.
2: <laughs> anyway, we,
1: we agreed to leave at like 5.30 or something. We gave him half an hour so he felt better. Um, and I did say to him, I said, listen, you know, we, we're fully acclimatized. We're pretty strong. Um, and with the greatest of respect, we're not going to wait for you. So, um we set off and after about fifteen minutes he fell behind and then we didn't see him for the rest of the day. Um which is absolutely fine. You know, I I told him that was sort of you know that might happen. Um but he he was totally humble about it. He's like, I'm sorry, I, I can't keep up, you know. That's just and I said that's fine, you know. Just so Steve and I smashed up to the summit. Uh it was a really cold day. We were well into the minus minus thirties actually, it was really cold, but perfect. Like blue sky as far as you could. See, like it's just amazing and then um yeah really steady really straightforward no problems and then on the way down we met the guide coming he'd still been coming up to about five thousand, um because you know he he had our safety in his interest uh and he yeah congratulated us and we headed down together and went off for some beers but um that was one that could potentially have caused a few hiccups if a big storm had come in or you know the weather had not allowed us but with having been there myself quite a lot, um, I was quite confident it would be all right. But it was cold. Yeah. It was good preparation for what was about to come next.
0: Yes. Yeah. And that's just before we do move on to that, um, we, if you are listening to this podcast and you haven't heard John's podcast with me on just an interview with John, cause he's a, a pretty interesting guy. Um, and uh, also we did an episode on Denali Uh, which is coming up next but within those episodes we talk about people placing their limitations on you and how how you go about dealing with it and uh you just touched upon it uh just then as well that guy saying no not possible it's really interesting to sort of take it in consider what he's saying and then come back and go no we're doing it (laughs) and and you're either with us or you're not um
1: yeah and i i fully understand why he said that and and i'm glad he did because otherwise I wouldn't have thought he was taking the whole situation seriously. But um, I then had to sort of, I mean, I hate to like stamp a little bit of authority, just given that it was my exhibition. I was effectively paying him. Steve was my client. So I was going to make the final decision. But I wanted that to work with him and I wanted our decision to be mutual. But I guess, you know, and rightly so, Steve, our, our speed on that summit day was unusual. That's not the norm for him working, so he wasn't to know that we weren't going to be a more conventional team, yeah. needing sort of eight to ten hours. So.
0: Perfect. And the next mountain is Denali, which is uh, super fascinating. We've done a podcast in much more detail going through, you know, the camps, how you go about climbing Denali, with a few anecdotes too. But as far as Seven Summits focused uh on denali and just talking about that side of it how was denali for you
1: denali was the most amazing experience i've probably ever had in the high altitude mountains um because of what we touched on earlier by bringing it forward we were gonna have to go in late winter pre-season with nobody on the mountain no rescue available um and it was going to be very, very cold uh, and very remote, which I mean it sounds absolutely perfect to me really, but um, not not really ideal when you're uh, when you 've got a particular objective and you 've got sort of clients as well um, but yeah we we got into in early March into Anchorage and spent a few days getting additional bits of kit like uh, we needed sort of 900 feet of rope to fix on the head wall and uh, arranging all our food uh, and all that sort of stuff. You know, everything from lighters to toilet paper. I had it all in a spreadsheet. I mean, I had so many amazing spreadsheets for this project. It was incredible. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But the the Denali one was absolutely on point. But then we, we drove down to... Uh, and sort of had the final preparations the rangers uh briefing and then we were we were into the glacier but yeah it's it's a you know there's a lot of people that were aware you know in in that area there were pe- all the people that we'd helped uh, uh brought in to help us pull the logistics together they were all kind of like they would say things that would make you think or, or know that this doesn't normally happen and that going in at this time of year is pretty unique um, uh, and going to be pretty hard and pretty cold. Like, people were really, really nice and like wished us all the very best, but like, we're kind of pretty quick to say it's going to be brutal.
2: Yeah.
1: Because people, people come back with severe frostbite in the normal season, like all the time, um, and sort of horror show stories of big storms and big winds and huge days. But yeah we, we we went in um, and it was it was super super special from the minute we landed and the plane flew away and sort of the penny dropped for the four of us that were there on that trip uh two friends of mine who came as well it we suddenly realized it was really real uh, and what is a funny thing for you that the plane that took us in had wanted to wait normally to fly you in in the morning and, and then fly back and you'd head off that day maybe but it wanted to wait until it knew the sun was going to be hitting that part of the glacier so that when we landed it wouldn't be like minus 20 minus 25 and the plane would wouldn't have a problem stopping for a period of time in that temperature and we would be able to safely get all our kit off and all the rest of it so it They thought about that on our behalf, which is great. So we actually landed about two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I had about two hours of sunshine before we lost it. Then the temperature goes and plummets back down again.
2: Yeah.
1: So yeah, we had supplies for uh, nearly a month. Everything we needed for the four of us. We had 900 feet of rope, um, gallons of white gas, all the food that we needed. Um, And for me, having been there, eight years before um it was so nice it was like a, a completion of a learning circle to have gone there when it when i was very young and it was the biggest thing i'd ever done to then come back full circle sort of uh, leading and organizing a, a winter ascent of this massive mountain it was so cool um i tell you that the first day was absolute hell so (laughs) because it was going to be winter the lower half of the mountain was probably going to have quite a lot of snow left on it so it would make traveling quite arduous and quite slow if you're just using your feet so you post hole through up to your knees or your waist through deep snow so you need some way to transport so either skis which would have been my preferred choice or uh snowshoes so um as Two of the team, Steve, one of them, and another guy didn't ski. We had to go for snowshoes. Um, <clears throat> I've used snowshoes a, a little bit, but I don't really like them that much. And I, and I find them really annoying. Anyway, so when as we set off, I was at the front, you know, 12-meter gap or 10-meter gap. Rope, Steve tied into the rope and then the other two. So we're like uh, nearly 60 meters spread out with us like across the rope. And I kept tripping over my, um, my snowshoe and then I'd just fall over because I had a heavy rucksack on. And then, then i have to try and pick myself back up without tangling the rope around my snowshoe. And then, you know, the sled is on cord behind me. So then that would slide along and then there'd be cord getting in. The- oh my God. <laughs> and, and then because the snow was quite deep and the sleds were really heavy, the sled would then tip as you can try your best to pack it with even weight spread across it but when it's really heavy and you're in deep snow it will find whichever side's heavier and then start to tip and it i was obviously breaking trail um so it was a bit like dragging like four tractor tires behind you (laughs) on a sandy beach like i know people (laughs) I know people, including myself, have, have pulled a tire along a beach to train for things like the Yukon Arctic Ultra, um, but this was hellish. Um, and I think in the space of two two and a half hours, we went less than a kilometre. No. Yeah. So every Jeez. foot, every foot I was putting in would go down like a foot or so deep. And then I'd you know, stamp my way through. That was okay. Lots of use of my walking poles. And then every now and then my sled would roll and turn and flip itself upside down. And, and then I'd have to like back walk, try not to trip over the rope. Yeah, so I, I shouted. My, my way to like try and not take this out on anybody was basically just to scream um, profanity at my sledge and stupid snowshoes on my feet. <laughs> You'll be, be delighted to know once we came off the sort of the side glacier of the Cahiltna where they drop you and we'd ended up onto the main big glacier and it was a bit more uniform and we we're actually going uphill, um, life became substantially easier. But it was still hard work, really hard work. And then we started doing the sort of cash and carry where we would take half the kit and then come back and then the next day move the rest of the kit. And that made it all much easier as well. We were just trying to be potentially a little ambitious setting off with everything when we actually had more kit than you would normally have in a normal trip because we had the extra rope and extra food and
2: yeah.
1: extra bits and bobs
0: and let's briefly talk about the summit as well, uh, your summit push for the seven summits which uh, is, uh, it's a little story that I think I could hear over and over again honestly <laughs> it, it's it's just epic I think
1: it's such a good day that, so, so we got into the camp four and established ourselves and that that was our like there was nothing else to think about or focus about until we'd reached sort of camp four um and then as we arrived a huge storm came in um it was massive and we built these walls like a prism around our two little tents um higher than the height of our tents about two foot wide these huge ice blocks that we cut with saws uh, we had like snow saws. So you cut them out, and you build these big walls um, around your tent. We were very proud of what we'd uh, built, and then we, we give or take, we didn't get out of the tent for like three days. It's just an unrelenting storm of 100 km plus winds, just smashing into us day and night for like three days. Uh, and every now and then, you'd have to go outside to rebuild the walls, or you know, to see how things are going. And I was just like, I, don't, I said to Steve, I don't know if we're going to even get the chance to try and summit. Um, and I was getting weather forecasts coming in. I had a, a device called a Garmin InReach, which is two-way comms in texting. I also had a sat phone as well, but it was quite expensive. So I was getting uh, a really, I was paying for a forecast from one of the Everest forecasters to forecast specifically for that side of Denali basically. Um and my dad to look at all of the sort of free accessible forecasts on the internet, sort of amalgamate them all and send me the bigger picture. And I was just looking at it going, Oh my God, this we might we might not get the chance to to do this. How is this possible? So, you know, we back counted all our food and we had like four days available to be where we were or higher and we could stretch that into five, maybe six days. Um, gas was okay, as long as we didn't do anything silly like knock it over or, or waste any. So I just yeah, kept looking. But we hadn't had a chance to make a Camp 5, and we very soon realized that was never going to happen. We weren't going to be able to do that. Yeah. So when it came round to it, it looked like there was going to be a small weather window of roughly 24 hours, potentially like an eye of the storm type thing or sort of one storm passes next storms coming in but it was going to be an unconventional time so from about you know early morning sunrise until for about 24 hours the winds on the summit were going to abate uh, and around sort of mid evening time in the middle of that 24 hour period uh, it should be sort of lower than 20 kilometers an hour which would be acceptable um so yes steve and i I had no choice. We we discussed it, and you know, I, I tried to give him some, at, given his you know his performances on the other mountains, I tried to give him some realistic expectations of what was going to happen, and and they were actually not far from the truth. But my two friends who hadn't had the time to acclimatise to the upper mountain realised. You know through, through the trip as well that they were not going to be able to sort of match the speed that steve and i were going to try and go uh, and to to pull out such a big day it was going to be enormous but um yeah it went really well we set off out of the camp at 9 a.m in the morning and the conditions were great there was still cloud around and there's still one of these beautiful lens clouds over the summit, a lenticular cloud which um, means that there's quite strong winds up there but as we climbed and as we watched it it was getting smaller and smaller and, and the edges were coming in and then after about four or five hours pretty much all the cloud had gone completely so it's getting the, the weather was doing as it said it would which was to continually improve for <clears throat> through this period of time yeah so we climbed the six lines pretty quickly that we'd fixed uh, ourselves uh about five days before which is an amazing day in its own right fixing on a steep head wall at 5,000 meters in alaska was amazing <laughs> and then along the ridge and we made it into the site of camp five in about four four and a half hours and here we took our longest break of the whole day which was probably about three minutes and during this three <laughs> minutes <laughs> during this three minutes we both put our down suits on because by this time it was like early afternoon and we knew that we were what was coming next, we were heading into the evening and into more serious terrain. So we thought, right, we could get our down suits on now while we're stood in a flat, safe place. You know, I went to the toilet for a number two. Uh, we had a quick drink and, and then we were, you know, we were both starting to shiver a bit. It's probably at least minus 30, 35. Mm. Um, so we're just, you know, trying to be quick and efficient. And then we set off across following the route and as i touched on in the denali podcast what's quite interesting is that in the winter it's almost too cold to snow right so you don't get these big snow dumps when it's minus 40 minus 50 but you do get these strong winds and they rip the mountain The, the upper mountain can get very bare the sort of quite quite hard neve and icy patches But from the main season where a lot of feet have traveled over the same bit, they squash the snow and that remains. So in places, there is what you can call like a raised footpath, sometimes two foot high, which is weird. And we just walked next to it, it, almost like a a navigational tool. And then some places it would have gone. But um, yeah, so we, we, you know, time was ticking, but we were making good progress. You know, the daylight was fading. It was probably pushing towards sort of 6, 7 p.m. We'd been going for 10 hours. Um, We were both very aware of our position. You know, we're in an incredibly fragile place. Like everything was fine. But if the smallest thing went wrong, like a crampon snapped or, you know, a twisted ankle, it would be probably catastrophic. It's a good point to say that um, we were carrying with us what we'd hoped would be enough kit or equipment to survive a night out, just if we had to. Yeah. But that was that was like absolutely last last resort. Um, we had a small group shelter, our sleeping bags, a thin foam roll mat, and a, and a very small stove, and that was literally it. Um, yeah. And we might might have been able to survive a night. And then, yeah, you know, we kept going, kept going. And then, um, you know, I don't want to to, uh, ruin the excitement of the Denali podcast. um, (laughs) And then, um, you know, it's it's a really exhausting day for me because I'm watching and listening and feeling everything around me making hundreds of micro decisions and micro risk assessments all the time about how Steve's moving, how he's feeling, you know, what the weather's doing, how the snow feels, you know, how slow or fast we're going, watching the time. And we were just, we would, everything was falling into place and we were doing great. And about two hours below the summit, we'd reached this area called the football field, a big flat area. Um, and I thought it'd be a good place to have a short break. And I just needed to check that Steve understood what was left and hadn't sort of forgotten what was going to be required to get back down safely. So, yeah, we, we sort of had a moment and I asked him if he had enough uh, in his tank to get up to the summit, which was about two hours away, and then you know the what was going to be into the night, into the cold, dark descent when you're really tired, uh, for about eight hours about to come and he, he said yes um and that was a really you know it was a really special moment for for me it was re- a real poignant and memorable moment in my career I think but we went on to uh Pig Hill the last sort of made excuse me the last main steep slope um and there was no nice footprints in or no 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 nice fixed line but you know, that's what I'm qualified and trained in. So we changed the rope setup that we had. It was no longer a sort of crevasse-based system. It was more of a short roping system. Uh, got him up onto the ridge. And then we enjoyed inter- the last, like, the absolute last, like, 0.1% glows of the sunset was just setting as Steve sets his feet onto the summit. And, w- and with that, you could just feel the, the temperature dropping. Um and yeah, we spent 20 or 30 seconds on the summit.
0: <laughs> the shortest um, amount of time ever spent on a summit.
1: <laughs> yeah, but n- neither of us wanted to spend any longer. We, no. we had a huge, I mean, so that was 12 hours or so. We had eight hours to go, but a very serious eight hours. Yeah. Um, and it was just too cold. Like on the descent, this is what I wanted to say, on the descent, I knew we were deep into the 40s. Like it was so cold. Yeah. Um, we were wearing down suits, 8,000 meter boots. I um, had heaters inside my boots. I had a down jacket on under my down suit, which I don't do for Everest or anything else. Uh, and I had a small thermos flask, is 0.7 of a liter, uh, inside my down suit, and the contents had frozen. <laughs> like we're well, not like fully frozen but like the once i'd cracked the lid off you know the the top thing was all blocked and so i cracked it off and inside was slushy and sort of cold and slushy mm. um, which was once hot chocolate
0: many and layers was... down by your torso <laughs> yeah. it is meant to be warm
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we were thirsty you know we we'd carried i think two two and a half liters knowing that we would be thirsty and dehydrated on the way down. But we, uh, our friends had very kindly in the daytime climbed out of Camp 4, up the head wall to the beginning of the ridge and deposited a few things there for us. Um, so that was really cool. But yeah, the descent was long through the night. And we eventually got back to the site of Camp 5. And I felt like for the first time I could just relax a little bit because from there the navigationally it was it was very simple because you join a ridge and then you follow the fixed lines and then we'd wandered the section through the through the complex terrain back to camp. But up from the summit back to camp five there was it was quite open and in the night time I had to really stay switched on, like really uh concentrate on steady progress but making sure we didn't get lost and went yeah. the right one. And then um once we got onto the ridge, you got line of sight of Camp 4. And this is probably 2 a.m., 3 a.m., something like that, yeah, 3 a.m. And we'd had no contact with my two friends at Camp 4. Um, they'd obviously inevitably seen the weather was good, but uh, were obviously still quite worried as well. And one of them had also got a small Garmin device and had been messaging his partner, um, who was then relaying? Steve's um, Steve had this amazing thing called a yellow brick, which was GPS points on a map. So at any point you, you could sign in and watch us moving. So my parents, some of my friends, Steve's parents—you know—lots of people were watching us that day, moving and doing this incredible day. Um, but we don't know who's watching. Obviously, it's just mm. silent in a way. Um, and after 17 hours, that stopped if you know batteries had gone it got too cold and that would oh, have this been is like a movie yeah, <laughs> that would have been just around camp 5 you know and we didn't realize that it had run out of battery or stopped we were just sort of uh, we didn't get it out to check or have a look no, uh, cool. we, later, we later found out that steve's mum had uh, emailed my my dad or phoned my dad and said um, you know the gps tracker stopped working should we be worried and my dad, bless him, he, his response was absolutely perfect. He, he said to her, well, I'm not worried because the fact that it has just stopped for no reason at all when they were seemingly doing fine just probably means the batteries have run out or something or they've turned it off because they're happy. Um, you know, if there was a serious situation, the GPS tracker would still be on, but they wouldn't be and moving. Still. Yeah we'd be still and then that would be a reason to perhaps be worried so my friend at camp four was was relaying to his partner about how we were getting on and they knew we'd reached the summit and they knew we'd been making steady progress and we hadn't slowed down and you know everything looked fine um but yeah he said that when when we came along the ridge for the first time and they saw our headlamps um he he's just like almost burst into tears because it was like such relief because we'd not Uh had any should, and for two hours or so, um, you know, they didn't know if we were moving or if there was a problem. And they were considering whether they should set off, you know, set off into the middle of the night to come and have a look. So they were like super relieved. So we flashed our head torches a bit and then got to the fixed lines. Um, and <laughs> because we would put the fixed lines in, I'd I'd used about 15 or 20 of my own ice screws and carabiners. And that's like a thousand quid's worth of metalware. So as Steve abseiled one by one, I stripped the whole route down. This was like 4am, 19 hours into the biggest, like stripping it as I went and descended and down climbing because uh, I wanted all my ice screws back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that was actually really fun. It made me engage my brain like really well and concentrate on sort of very consequential terrain. Anyway, so I fixed that and then caught Steve up and we re- we just had a really lovely last sort of half an hour um slowly into camp sort of where we just you know said thanks to each other and uh yeah yeah, got back to camp at 5 a.m having done what will undoubtedly be and hopefully always be the biggest hardest high attitude day ever
0: yeah for sure and then it doesn't really seem like it, it could get much better but we are off to everest now as the as the last one
1: yeah, so a bit of classic Steveism on this one. We flew okay. straight across to, um, oh, i mean, just it's just brilliant. Uh, we flew straight across to Kathmandu, and let's be honest, we we were both reasonably emaciated. We'd we'd asked a lot of our bodies to. We'd spent eighteen, nineteen days on the glacier on Denali, um, that humongous summit day, and then obviously descending. You know, I'd lost tons of weight as a Steve, so we. We checked ourselves into a nice hotel in Kathmandu and had five days of literally doing nothing other than eating and sleeping yeah. and sort of just resting and recuperating. Yeah, and then... You
0: need it. Carb up, get protein, recover.
1: <laughs> I, I said to... You know, Steve probably would have had one or two days and then gone in and I was like, I need it and I'm telling you that you need it. Like, we need... To not ruin this Everest expedition by going in wasted. And we didn't need to, we didn't, because we were acclimatized to a degree, we didn't need to. Anyway, about five or six days in, we flew to Lukla. And a normal base camp trek is 10 or 12 days. Steve and I, uh, being fully acclimatized and given that Steve walks at 100 miles an hour, we arrived in the afternoon on day three <laughs> to base camp, which is fine. Like the distances aren't that bad but normally when you're going in you're acclimatizing as you go so we just did three big days and got in um so you know that's where we can save days on the itinerary you know it was really cool and then we had the puja like the the ceremony with all of the the, i basically bolted onto the side of a bigger expedition company so we could just get two permit places and some basic logistics and then we we would do our stuff and stuff on the mountains uh, so we went for uh, a rotation. Steve had actually been on Lhotse before; he'd summited Lhotse, so he knew how the whole operation works. Because the only difference between Lhotse and Everest is that camp three on Lhotse you split. Yeah. Go right to Lhotse, left to Everest. Just like one and a half days different. Um, so we did a rotation up through the ice fall to go and check it all out and get some of our kit up onto the mountain, just straight up to camp two. Um, fantastic, it was really nice to be back, because I hadn't been on the south side since 2013, this was 2018, um, and then we got wind that some people were going to try and climb Noopsy, uh, which is a peak just to the right, so you've got Everest on the left, Lotsey in the middle, and Noopsy on the right that make what's dubbed Triple Crown, um, and we'd actually, once we'd done Denali, Steve and I had a little chat and he said, let's get a LOTSI permit and we'll do LOTSI as well. Everest and LOTSI together because he really enjoyed it a few years before and he thought it'd be a nice thing for us to do if we had enough energy. Anyway, the 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 Nupsi thing came up and we we're like, wow, yeah, this would be so cool. But then I have to rein him in a little bit and be like, well, let's not ruin our chances on Everest. That's our number one. Um, but we went and discussed it, and you know a few friends, including Adam Booth, who's climbed Everest before, I've been with him. He's he's a doctor and super super strong, and Tim Mosdale that I have discussed before in the other podcast. The four of us uh, managed to get onto the permit and joined forces with uh, a total Himalayan legend called Guy Cotter, who owns and runs Adventure Consultants, who's um, like the godfather of Himalayan high altitude climbing. And he had a private client and some Sherpas, so it was a really s- strong small team. Um, yeah, and we, you know we established a, a high camp at the bottom of Nupsi and, and went for it. And you know it's a collective effort. You know, incredible effort by the two Sherpas out front, and then the rest of sort of breaking trail and, and fixing behind. Um, but for one reason or another. That, when we got to within about 200 meters of the summit, that would have been about 7,600 meters, uh, just 200 meters below the summit. The route pulls out from like a, a ridge and onto an open face at sort of the perfect 38, 45 degree angle. And it was super loaded with heavy snow. Uh, and the risk to have gone onto those slopes would have almost indefinitely triggered some sort of catastrophic avalanches. Um, and it just didn't make any sense. So uh, we all turned back from that point. Yeah. But that was our acclimatization done. Since arriving, we did one trip up through the ice to Camp 2 and then back down to base camp and then a trip up to Camp 2 and across to Nupsi to do that. And then that was us ready and acclimatized. Um, and then it was just a waiting game. We were ready at the end of April and we were praying for an early may weather window like a four, five, sixth of may but unfortunately it didn't quite materialize um and we had a we had a huge buffer we had until like the 26th of may to summit in order for steve to break the record so we, i was pretty chill about it but steve doesn't do things by halves as you might have guessed guessed <laughs> And he wanted to really close this record off as tight as he possibly could. He'd got the last day of the season on Vincent, and he wanted to close it off really tight on Everest. But, you know, we have to play the game and play with the weather and allow the, the Sherpa fixing team the opportunity to get up and do their job and sort of fix the, the final days. So we managed to sort of follow up closely behind them, but uh, giving, you know, whilst being in communication with them and giving them the space they need. And then we arrived into the South Col as they descended back down, having summited on the 13th. And then we left that night, sort of about 11.30 that evening. So still in the 13th and then climbed through into the morning of the 14th. And yeah, were the first folk, first non-Sherpa, uh, non-climbing Sherpas to summit that year. For what that's worth, <clears throat> um, but in doing so, yeah, on May the fourteenth at about seven thirty, Steve took his final steps onto the summit of Everest, and took eleven days, I think, nine nine days off the the record, and I think possibly made it well made it incredibly difficult to to attempt to try and beat, but almost impossible.
0: Yeah, that's nuts. What an incredible experience!
1: Yeah, it was really amazing, and it wasn't anticlimactic in any way. But um, as I touched on before, we kind of knew that Everest would be okay if we'd got the other six done, and we got there, and we were healthy and uh, and fit. Then it w- it would probably be okay. Yeah. So and and it it was it was an amazing day. Um, one of my Sherpas, uh, Pemba, came along. Uh, with us. Uh, and again, he, he had an amazing day, like super quick. He had nothing to do apart from just enjoy being on the mountain um, with the two of us. We all carried all our own oxygen. And um, I think it is a real pleasure for him, it was a pleasure for us to have him along. Um, but the three of us just had a really, really good day and then got back to the South Coal. And Pember carried on and descended back down. And Steve and I spent a second night in the South Col, um, and then the next morning woke up at about two a.m. Spent a couple of hours brewing up and packing away our kit, and then descended back down the Lhotse face to Camp Three, and then dropped our kit and climbed to climbed the Lhotse Khuwa cool through to the summit of Lhotse that day, uh, summiting around midday. It's so cool. It's so cool because. Yeah. We- we look back on Everest on a really unique perspective, having just thinking, oh man, yesterday we were up there, and it it was so so cool. So we summited Lhotse, uh and then just blasted back down the lines back to Camp Three, picked up our stuff, straight down the Lhotse face to Camp Two, met a couple of uh, met Tim Tim Mostel, a couple of his clients coming up. Some of our Sherpa friends who uh, work at Camp 2 and then carried on down to base camp. And um, by this time, we were getting pretty tired. I'd say yeah. we were reasonably tired. Loxie's 8-5, base camp's 5-3. Um, yeah, we got in about 9. Um, and it was really good. Everyone was, like, gone to bed. It was, um, uh, Tim actually was at base camp, sorry, wasn't at Camp 2. Um, and he stayed up and sort of welcomed us in. We had a little beer and uh, we had a quick game of uh, Connect Four. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, he was delighted for us, but Steve and I were just, yeah, relieved and ecstatic and tired. Um, But yeah, it was just just totally epic. Really, really cool.
0: Yeah, a truly stunning experience. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So... Before we move on to some wrap-up questions, is there is there anything else you'd like to mention about the Seven Summits other than all the hidden gems you've mentioned and the funny stories and the risks? <laughs> I, I think um, we may have covered everything. Uh, you
1: know yeah, better I mean, than me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've done a whirlwind trip of the Seven Summits. Um, what, what we tried to do was to do it as, sort of, um, as self-sufficient and... Sort of simple and stripped back as we possibly could. Um, each of the mountains gets done uh, regularly with big sort of commercial teams, of which some some of the mountains I'm on myself. But it was it was a really unique experience for me, uh, and it was the it was the only way it would have worked for Steve, being that strong and that competent. There was no other way it could have worked other than for him to have a a friend, you know, or a guy like myself, working one to one. And just being able to be super flexible and move around the hill together. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I would just like to say yeah thanks again to Steve for for that trip. It was it was just a dream. It's a dream ticket for for someone like me. And um, we didn't really argue once about anything.
2: Yeah.
1: And yeah, it's a credit to him that the whole trip was super successful.
0: Perfect. Perfect. So we've um we've spoken in previous podcasts that denali holds quite a special place for you um on on two different occasions so with that in mind in regards to the seven summits what would you say your favorite mountain was and if it was denali then let's go second favorite
1: (laughs) well one of the reasons why it's such such an amazing um Thing to try and achieve uh, even if it's over a lifetime or whenever, it's just that for obvious reasons, that all seven of them are completely different yeah. culturally, historically environmentally they're all completely different of course they have uh, similarities and parallels, but they're all really unique, like deepest, darkest Russia is very unique, and you know the, the local people that we met in West Papua were you know a descendants of proper jungle tribal you know a long time back perhaps some cannibalism that type of thing they were extraordinarily cool people amazing and then of course you've got the singing and the dancing and the and the lovely lovely family that i know so well in africa so they're all pretty special i think and you know the way steve and i did them all was a bit unique on most of them but i I would probably still go back to say kilimanjaro because of the itinerary that we did was completely unique Um, sleeping in the crater is really special and then we got a double summit obviously because we summited the afternoon before sleeping in the crater and then back up for the sunrise the next morning and then obviously running down so that kind of mixed together everything that was great about all the mountains really
0: perfect perfect so you spent a lot of time with new people and we've discussed this in previous podcasts you've mentioned it a couple of times today but uh what's what are good ways of spending your downtime and connecting with people from different languages and different cultures
1: um so i mean yeah i uh, cards is a great one and uh, yeah A particular favourite of mine is Monopoly Deal. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Monopoly Deal.
0: Only that it was your favourite in the middle of 2019 (laughs) on the Further Faster podcast as well.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant. (laughs) So that still reigns
0: reigns highest, is it?
1: Yeah, that gets played a lot. And uh, another uh, favourite of mine is a, a dice game called Perudo which is uh you can have up to well six players uh and you have five dice each you can have less players if you want you just discard players um and it's a game of bluff basically and you go higher and higher and higher until you get called out um <laughs> and you lose you lose dice it, it's it's really fun and that seems to always go down really well on expeditions um but the one of the fun things that always passes the time is the the badman points so people get you know, we talked about this in the, the other podcast about really good personal admin. It's imperative. And then the opposite of that is obviously bad men. But we make light of it and and um, use it as learning all the time. Uh, and I, I keep a tally on my phone of all sorts of things. So like if someone vomits for any reason, they get a point in the vomit tally or, you know, when we're playing Connect 4, I always keep a tally of every single win across everybody. So, like, <laughs> all the card games, everything gets tallied up. So, at the end, we have this really unique, um, sort of fact, fact tally. Yeah. Of like, okay, so, you know, um, Pete won, you know, the Connect 4 tournament with 37 overall wins, you know, uh, and, <laughs> you know, this many, this many people did this and that, and it's really cool. But, I think um, one of the best things for me about these big trips is the, the space it gives you to just think. And often, you know, just spending some time sat, watching, looking, observing and soaking it all in is, is one of my favourite ways to pass the time. And I, I really encourage people to do that as well. It's very easy yeah. to spend time on your phone. You know, a lot of these places you do actually still get phone signal you know, on Kilimanjaro and Akon Kagura, you can still get phone signal or potentially Wi-Fi at some of the base tents. Um, and yeah, I fully appreciate that people need to and want to keep in touch with folk back home or, you know, uploading some pictures. That's great. But it is also the prime chance to not be glued to your phones and, and technology. Yeah, sure. And to to engage in the... Long lost art of conversation, which um, I know we've had some great conversations today, yeah. but um, all too often these days we don't pick up the phone or don't meet people in real life and just converse. Yeah. And you might, after after you get back into the habit of doing it, you can sit all day and mindlessly play some cards, converse about everything, put the world to rights, and then the next day you're back out climbing pretty serious stuff again.
2: Yeah,
0: for sure. So I got a before going on to two sort of last questions, um, I've got this pen penultimate question, which kind of cropped up as you were talking about uh, being acclimatized and yet you've still come down the mountain and being a complete rookie to it, uh, perhaps there's some other rookie people listening as well. How long does it actually take for your body to become unclimatized? So you, you go up, you're climatized, you come back to sea level. How long does it actually take for your body to kind of get that reset?
1: saying how long does your acclimatization last for yeah um that is an amazing question that no one knows the answer to yeah um from personal experience um if you've been to high altitude for a prolonged period of time you can feel it leaving your body it's it's so depressing
2: (laughs) (laughs) um
1: so you when you come back from these trips to high altitude you might, you might need uh, a few days just to rest up. You might have had a big summit day or a long flight, but then after a few days, you, you have this extra energy, this extra power, and if you go on your regular 10K run or your regular 30-mile bike loop or whatever it might be, you'll find that you'll just smash your PB, like without even trying,
2: <laughs> because you've got these
1: additional red blood cells, this uh, acclimatization, you know, more hemoglobin, working. And then every day you, you lose a bit, just like the way you acclimatise the first time. Yeah. You lose a bit. You depower, as, as I call it. Um, and it's <laughs> phenomenally depressing. When you come back to sea level and you've still got that in you and you can just power up stuff, uh, it's an amazing feeling. And then you slowly lose it. But no one really knows the answer to that question. But I think think it would be probably slightly quicker than acclimatizing at the beginning but say for example you'd been to the summit of Kilimanjaro and come back down I reckon if you went back up five days to a week later you'd probably feel very few effects of the altitude and you'd still have enough acclimatization within your body but I guess you I, I'm guessing you would start to unacclimatize as soon as you're back at sea level because you no longer mm-hmm. need it
0: yeah cuz the altitude sickness goes quite quickly doesn't it I, i've been told that it, yeah. it, i thought so it's really weird someone i know simply took a cable car up a swiss mountain to check out a town there and said that she had an incredible headache like sickeningly yeah. and it was so odd that every meter she dropped down she just felt better it's not like she yeah. felt ill for the next day back at sea level like it just straight away comes back
1: well that's that's uh, like an altitude uh, air pressure kind of related headache, yeah. if you rush up and air pressure expands and you've got a banging headache and then as soon as you go back down and it yeah. Yeah, the expands us um, contracts then yeah it would, it would go really quickly and off, too often on these big mountains if people are really sick and you, know, you, you turn them around or you recommend that they turn around and they turn back they'll descend 200, 300 maybe 400 metres and then feel fine and then they'll want to come back up, but you have to convince them that if they, if they did come back up, they would then feel really bad straight away again. They would. That's what always happens. But it's hard for them when they did feel a bit rubbish, or you yeah. know, really rubbish. And then within half an hour, they're down three, four hundred meters, and they feel so much better. Yeah. So that's a really positive thing. It's um, it's good to know that. Yeah. And and actually, in
0: that in that situation, if you had all the time in the world. Could it be a case where those people could just spend another day and then go back up those three, four hundred meters and beyond? Or yeah. sometimes is it more physiological based and that they just can't?
1: Um, I'm a little. I, I'm personally of the same sort of opinion like the film Ratatouille that anybody can go to altitude. <laughs> um, I <laughs> that think Famous quote is, from
0: Ratatouille, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, in Ratatouille, I'm sure he says anybody can cook. Yeah, um, he
0: does. Yeah. yeah. I'd
1: probably disagree. I'm a terrible cook, but. Um, I I think anyone can go to altitude, but certainly everybody acclimatizes differently. And um, it can be really difficult if you are on an itinerary and you're one of those people that just does not acclimatize very well at all. Um, You will acclimatize, of course, but you may just need so much longer that it just isn't fun, or it might just not be enough time in the itinerary. And actually, a high altitude might not just might just not be for you um but i also think and this is a this might have been a question that you thought about i think you get better at acclimatizing every time you go um which makes per- my
0: head right now yeah
1: <laughs> yeah which makes perfect sense because the more you do something the better you become you know whatever it is that's just learning that's how we work and um yes you know i've got uh, regular clients of mine have come through on quite a number of trips now who get better each time just because their admin is so much better they look after themselves they they listen to their bodies they keep hydrated they avoid the sun they rest when they should be resting and they're less anxious so they sleep better and all these little things that all add up to help you acclimatize perfect so
0: penultimate question you're travelling between mountains. Obviously, you've got a little bit of downtime. What are three mandatory songs that are playing in your ears?
1: Three mandatory songs?
0: Yeah. Road trip songs between mountains.
1: <laughs> um, I love listening to music, and I've got a very eclectic, uh, slightly random taste. But I'm a huge fan of Mumford & Sons. Yeah. Yeah, big fan of Mumford & Sons. So... Um, many of their songs Probably one of their uh, Guiding Light off their recent albums Quite upbeat uh, I really like it um, It's one of the few albums I have offline On my Spotify Yeah, Guiding Light Is uh, a fabulous song um, I listen to quite a lot of music That's reasonably sort of Chilled and melancholy And I guess if it's between summits That's downtime so potentially something from Coldplay, perhaps. Nice. Um, and then for the sunset evenings and you know, beers on the veranda and the barbecues and that sort of thing or, or whatever, the chill, the chill times, I quite like um, pretty mellow drum and bass. So there's a group called AK. Um, it's pretty soft, um, quite melodic sort of drum and bass. Very nice sort of background music. You don't get too psyched to, like, get on it and go out, out. But it's good for sort of a pick you up. Yeah.
0: Perfect. And then last question, and I ask this of everyone. Um, I I know what your answer <laughs> is. Because I think you, there's something else. Yeah. Oh, okay. So mention it, because it's been that long since your initial interview and Denali's been uploaded. So mention it. But let's get a second one in there as well. So what are two moments you would relive on the Seven Summits uh, world record you helped helped see the tape? Two
1: moments I'd relive. I would relive, obviously, the moments that I allowed myself to realise that we were going to make it to the Summit of Denali. Because that was like the pivotal point of the whole expedition. Even before we started, we knew it had come down to that decision. And that moment when I realised we would make it was really special. Uh, and I guess undoubtedly, it, it would have to be um, you know, when it, on the summit of, going towards the summit of Everest, we'd left um, the South Pole last that evening. By a good hour or so, and during the night we'd overtaken everybody else that was going for the summit that day. There was about thirty people in total, stretched, you know, not many, um, and it's very easy to to negotiate. And as we climbed out the top of the Hillary Step, there was just a couple more people just ahead of us, and I felt reasonably bad, but I did just check. I said, "Do you mind if we go ahead?" And you know, they obviously didn't mind at all. So as I went ahead for Steve, you know, it's just the two of us. Then I sort of stepped aside and unclipped and and took my camera out to video Steve stepping up. And I guess the feeling was watching him achieve that was the, the emotions and the feelings that I had, less so me like a minute or two later, wandering up and standing on the summit as well, because I'd already done that a couple of times before. And the mm. trip was nothing about me or me reaching the summit. It wasn't about that at all. Um, so that moment, watching him achieve what he'd set out to do, was really special.
0: Perfect. And what a wholesome moment to relive as well. Not like, uh, not the not the massaging of the ego of running down Kilimanjaro, or or driving out between Aconcagua and Kilimanjaro. But um, no, not at all. A wholesome moment of I mean, helping Steve do that.
1: It's always good to have your massage ego, uh, all the way around your ego massaged. But um, <laughs> the the real special moments are. Yeah, those ones where you can watch something happen as a result of your hard work and time.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, <laughs> sorry about <laughs> the background there, hello. Um, yeah, thank uh, you so much for coming uh, on the podcast. It's been a total, total pleasure. And um, I'll see you in the next one, hopefully.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. It's been really fun. Cheers. Cheers, take care
0: what a fantastic chat with john just listening to him do his stuff just everything he knows best facilitating and masterminding the seven summits world record an incredible story and so much they got up to around the summits themselves which is quite fascinating for me if you enjoyed it please do consider hitting the subscribe or the follow button and by all means share it with your friends too so that you can spread the love and we can make this podcast grow into everything it can btmtravelpod at gmail.com if you want to come on the show or have any questions or feedback and follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at btmtravelpod i hope
2: you enjoy the episode i hope to see you in the next one and have a great day